Well, please turn with me, if you have your Bibles, to Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7. This morning we will be finishing our consideration of the Heidelberg Catechism's exposition of the Ten Commandments, and we will be considering a brief theology of of the law of God as we conclude this section in our catechism on the Ten Commandments. And so our, our our text that will anchor us this morning is Romans chapter 7. We'll be reading together the the entire chapter, so verses 1 through 25. So please pay careful attention, for this is God's holy and inspired word given to us this morning. Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. For a married woman is bound by the law to her husband while he lives, But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order, that we may, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions, aroused by the law, were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, You shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I once was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might, might become sinful be, uh, beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law 
that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Well, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, please also turn with me in your order of worship to the confessional reading element. Uh, This morning we are confessing together Heidelberg Catechism question answers 113 to 115. But we also will be confessing together a portion of question 92, which is a catechism's restatement of the Ten Commandments. And we will particularly be reading from the Tenth Commandment of question 92. Again, this catechism was written in uh, 1563 to, be, to serve as, as a teaching tool for the church. And what it gives to us is the basic mountain peaks of Scripture. It distills for us the most important truths that we find from Genesis through Revelation. As always, I will read the question if you'd please respond by reciting the answer. Question 92 asks, what is God's law? You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or male or female servant or ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Question 113 asks, well, what is God's will for you in the 10th commandment? That not even the slightest desire or thought contrary to any one of God's commandments should ever arise in our hearts. Rather, with all our hearts, we should always hate sin and delight in all righteousness. Question 114 says, but can those converted to God keep these commandments perfectly? No, in this life, even the holiest have only a small beginning of this obedience. Nevertheless, with all seriousness of purpose, they do begin to live according to all, not only some, of God's commandments. Question 115. Since no one in this life can keep the Ten Commandments perfectly, why does God want them preached so pointedly? First, so that all our whole life long, we may more and more come to know our sinful nature and thus more eagerly seek the forgiveness of sins and righteousness in Christ. Second, that we may never stop striving and never stop praying to God for the grace of the Holy Spirit, that we may be renewed more and more after God's image until after this life we reach our goal perfection. Well, let us pray. Merciful, Fa- Merciful Father, we thank you that you have given to us your written and inspired word, and we pray that as we have recently read from your word, and as we now will hear uh, the same word uh, preached and exposited, we pray that we would not be mere hearers of your word, but that we would inwardly digest these scriptures for our edification and growth in this Christian life. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, boys and girls, uh, what are the three sections of our catechism? Annabelle? Very good. And which section are we in? Annabelle? 
Gratitude. Gratitude. Very good. Now, um, how does the catechism summarize the Christian life? Sanctification. Something that we haven't gotten over recently. Uh, Lily? Yes, very good. The dying of the old man, the making alive of the new man. And Paul here in Romans 7 alludes that inner conflict between the old man and the new man. Now, what is the definition of a good work, boys and girls? Definition, Lily? Yes, very good. Done out of true faith, according to God's law, and, and unto the glory of God. Now, a good work, then, is defined by the law of God, which is expressed in the Ten Commandments. This is why we have spent so many weeks considering God's will for us in the Ten Commandments. And so what are the, uh, what questions does the first commandment answer? What question? Annabelle? Who we should worship. Uh, what question does the, uh, do the second and third commandments answer? Noel? How we should worship. And what, uh, what question does the fourth commandment answer? Violet? When? Very good. Now, uh, commandments 5 through 10 are all about how we love our neighbor. The first four commandments are about how we love God, chiefly through worship. The last six commandments speak about our love for neighbor. And we should still think about the call to love God, even in the second table of the law, because we love God through loving our neighbor. So the fifth commandment speaks to our honoring of authority figures. The sixth commandment speaks to... Um, uh, preserving human life and promoting human life and loving our neighbor directly. The seventh commandment speaks about loving our neighbor through pursuing purity. The eighth commandment speaks about loving our neighbor by working hard so that we might be generous. The ninth commandment uh, forbids lying and calls us to speak true words that build one another up. And now we come to the tenth commandment. And so what we're going to do this morning is we're going to consider uh, both what this tenth commandment forbids and what it requires. And then we're going to spend a few moments looking at question and answers 114 and 115, which is really the catechism's um, theology of the law of God. And so first, we're going to spend a few moments here on the 10th commandment. Now, in question answer 113, what does the 10th commandment forbid? What does the 10th commandment forbid in question answer 113? Exactly, yes. It forbids all sinful desires or thoughts. That not even the slightest desire or thought contrary to any one of God's commandments ever enter my heart or our hearts. Now, positively, what does it require us to do? Look at the second half of questions one through. Right? Delight in all righteousness. We hate all sin, but then we positively delight in all righteousness. So it forbids all sinful desires, and it calls us to delight in all righteousness. Or to put it another way, the, the 10th commandment is not forbidding desire. Desire itself is not, is not wrong. Rather, desire is something that's given to us as image bearers of God. Rather, what the 10th commandment forbids is wrong desires, sinful desires. It forbids covetousness. It forbids discontentment. It forbids an idolater's desire for things that God has not given to us in a particular season of life. It's an idolater's desire for things that other people have that we do not have. And then positively, it's calling us to be content. And contentment, as we thought about a couple weeks ago, means that we are satisfied, we're okay with our present 
circumstances, our present lot in life. Why? Because God promises to never leave us nor forsake us, and because God promises to show up in power in the midst of our trials, our afflictions, our sufferings. Those are the reasons why we can be content no matter what's going on in our life. Now, again, as, we, as I said a few weeks ago, contentment doesn't um, equate with laziness or a lack of ambition. We are to pursue the goods of this life, and uh, this is a good thing for us to do. However, we pursue the goods of this life out of a place of contentment. And it's very important for us to understand contentment does not equal laziness, does not equal lack of ambition. Rather, we are to be responsible. We are to pursue a better lot in life, oftentimes, out of a place of contentment. And we're either coveting or we're content. Uh, there's not a whole lot of middle, middle room in between these two things. And so the 10th commandment forbids covetousness. It forbids sinful desires and thoughts and positively calls us to be content, to, to uh, be satisfied with who God is for us as our providential heavenly father. Now, the 10th commandment is a very fitting way to conclude the 10 commandments. You'll notice that question answer 113 connects this commandment to commandments 1 through 9 and by extension every commandment found in God's moral law. Notice how it says that not even the slightest desire or thought contrary to any one of God's commandments ever enter our hearts. So it's connecting this commandment with every other commandment of God. We break commandments 1 through 9 through breaking the 10th commandment. So you can think of the 10th commandment as the on-ramp to the breaking of commandments 1 through 9. We first break commandments 1 through 9 by first breaking the 10th commandment because the 10th commandment is all about the desires of our hearts. And so when you think of the first commandment, we first break the first commandment by breaking the 10th commandment when we cherish or love anything more than God. We first break the second commandment by breaking the 10th commandment when we have mental images and depictions of God. We first break the third commandment by breaking the 10th commandment when we complain and grumble in our hearts against God and his works of providence in this life. We first break the fourth commandment by breaking the 10th commandment when we are distracted in moments like this and other uh, times of fellowship on the Lord's Day uh, because of work or other common pursuits throughout the week. We break the fifth commandment by way of the 10th commandment when we harbor resentment against authority figures. We break the sixth commandment by way of the 10th commandment when we hate our neighbor. Uh, we break the seventh commandment by way of the tenth commandment when we uh, lust after our, our neighbors. Uh, we break the eighth commandment when we, uh, through the tenth commandment, when we desire the possessions of others. And finally, we break the ninth commandment by way of the tenth commandment when we choose to, on the one hand, believe lies and we criticize other people within our hearts. And so, the tenth commandment served as the on-ramp for the breaking of the first nine commandments. And so the 10th commandment is a very fitting way for the moral law of God to conclude. Now Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, he is in part criticizing or critiquing, I should say, the Pharisees' interpretation of the moral law of God. And the Pharisees in the first century essentially interpreted the moral law of God as only extending to our external actions. And Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, was uh, criticizing 
and offering a rebuttal to that pharisaical interpretation of the moral law of God. And this is why we see Jesus saying, well, you have heard that it was said, you shall not murder, but I say to you, you shall not hate your brother. You, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you, whoever is lust after another woman commits adultery. So Jesus, in this Sermon on the Mount, reminds us that the moral law of God extends not only to our hands, but to our heads and to our hearts. Now, as Jesus is offering this interpretation of the moral law, he is not putting forward a new or novel interpretation of God's moral law. Rather, he is interpreting the law of God according to his original intent. That interpretation that Jesus puts forward in the Sermon on the Mount is embedded in the Ten Commandments themselves. How so? Well, the Tenth Commandment tells us how we are to interpret Commandments 1 through 9. The Tenth Commandment tells us that we are to uh, read these commandments which speak explicitly to our external conduct as not only extending to our hands, but also to our heads and to our heart. And so the author of our catechism, in his commentary on the same catechism, says this in light of the Tenth Commandment. He says that the Tenth Commandment was added to the other commandments as a general rule and interpretation according to which the internal obedience of all the other commandments must be understood. And so the Tenth Commandment not only says what it says on its surface, but also is given to us as an interpretive and hermeneutical tool to help us understand the rest of the moral law of God. Well, this concludes our consideration of the Ten Commandments as our guide for the Christian life, as that which defines our good works. Now, you'll notice in question answer 114, the catechism then follows up with a, a pretty important question. Can we keep these commandments, the Ten Commandments, perfectly? And after considering the Tenth Commandment, the answer should be quite obvious. No. When we realize that the Ten Commandments speak not only to our hands, but to our head and to our hearts, we begin to realize how miserably we fail to keep this law when we're judged according to strict justice. And this is why the commandment says no, uh, or this is why the catechism says no, in this life even the holiest have only a small beginning of this obedience. Now Paul says very much the same thing here in Romans chapter 7. Paul in Romans chapter 7 is, uh, I believe, speaking from his own Christian experience. And as he's speaking from his own personal experience as a Christian, he's giving us a glimpse into uh, the reality of the Christian life. And so in verses 14 and 15 of Romans chapter 7, Paul says, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. Paul here is speaking as a regenerate Christian, and he's saying as a regenerate Christian, he has a holy desire to please God, to obey God's law. But what he finds himself doing over and over again is, is acting contrary to that desire and doing the very things that he hates. I think we all can relate to that. The irrationality of sin. We know what we're doing is wrong. It's only going to lead to joylessness and, and misery, but yet we do it nonetheless. And, that, and, and, and when we look back on our sins in hindsight, we think, why did we do that? 
It makes no rational sense. And that's what Paul is describing here. He finds himself constantly doing the very thing that he hates according to his regenerate self. Paul is speaking here of that internal struggle between the old man and the new man. Now, the Apostle Paul would no doubt qualify as being in the category of the holiest of men, as question and answer 114 alludes to. But yet Paul, by his, own very, by his very own admission, I believe would say that he only has a small beginning of true perfect obedience if he were to be judged according to God's strict justice. And so what that means for you and me, who are not the Apostle Paul, is that we are, our obedience is something less than a small beginning. But yet, this admission by the Apostle Paul does not lead to an antinomian spirit. You know, a spirit that says, I don't really care about obedience. I can live how I want because perfection is not attainable. No, Paul says in verse 22, in a summary, uh, sum, uh, as a sort of a summary verse of his um, intention to obey God's law, he says, for I delight in the law of God in my inner being. Even though he realizes that there's this inner conflict and he realizes that oftentimes uh, he stumbles and falls, he still delights and desires and strives for this obedience. Now this point that both our catechism is making and the Apostle Paul is making here is a very important point. One does not become a legalist overnight. You know, if, if you read question answer 114, and it sounds a bit off to you, you think, I don't know about confessing this, that the holiest of men have only a small beginning of perfect, true obedience. That sounds a little bit antinomian, like we don't care about, about obedience and, and, and virtuous living in this life. If that sounds alarming to you, then that may be an indication that you're tempted towards legalism. One does not become a legalist overnight. It's a gradual process. And what happens is that we begin to, we begin to lower God's standard of his law. We begin to think that we can actually sufficiently keep God's law well enough so as to maintain our relationship with him. And when we begin to have that understanding of God's law, when we begin to lower God's standard in his law, what then necessarily happens is we begin to, to lower um, our view and conception of the gospel. The gospel goes from being good news to pretty good news. Jesus has only made salvation possible upon the condition of us sufficiently doing our part. And so the law becomes less demanding, less stringent, and then the gospel becomes less gracious. And really the same impulse is true for those who are sort of antinomian, don't care a whole lot about righteous living, because they, have also lowered, they also have lowered God's standard in his law insofar as they think it doesn't apply to them. But then they also have lowered their view of the gospel in that they think the gospel doesn't really change them. And so the proper response is to let the law be the law in all its fullness, in all its demands, and have an honest account of our obedience in light of that law, and then let the gospel be the gospel in all its fullness, in all its graciousness. Well, then, the catechism in, in question answer 115 says that, you know, recognizing that we have a small beginning, small beginning of true perfect obedience, says, well, if perfection is not possible, then why do we even bother preaching the law? Why do we even bother teaching about the law? Why do we even bother reading the law and seeking to apply it in our lives? If, if the standard is so unattainable, then why, why, do we just, why don't we just ditch it you know, to the side of the road and move on? And so question 115 is essentially giving us um, reasons for why the law is still relevant to us as Christians, even though we will not attain perfection in this life. 
the law is still relevant for us. Now, historically, Reformed theologians have taught that there are three uses of God's moral law. And this is a very important distinction to, to understand in order to make sense of a lot of what Paul says in his epistles. And so, uh, Reformed theologians have taught that, that the first use of God's law, is, which they sometimes refer to as the pedagogical use of God's law, is how God's law comes to us as a covenant of works. So God's law as a covenant of works comes to individuals promising eternal life if we perfectly keep it, and it threatens everlasting death if we transgress it, even at a single point. This is how Adam, before the fall, related to the law of God. Adam had, had, had no mediator. God was not relating to Adam by way of grace, but rather God related to Adam by way of strict justice according to his law. And so Adam, when he received the law of God, uh, he received that law both as a means of attaining eternal life, if he perfectly kept it, and as uh, that which would curse him, that which threatened death if he transgressed it even at a single point. And so this is that first use of the law. And Paul speaks about this first use of the law in Romans chapter 7, verse 10, when he says, the very commandment that promised life, right, everlasting life, eternal life, the law promises life, proved to be death to me because I transgressed it. So the law promises and it threatens. Now, Paul uses the analogy of marriage to describe this first use of the law in verses 1 through 3. Now, you'll notice that Paul, in the beginning of chapter 7, he talks about how a married woman is bound to her husband so long as he lives. But once the, her husband dies, she is no longer bound to that marriage and is then free to remarry. And Paul then uses this analogy to speak about our relationship to God's law. And so he says in verse 4, Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. Paul is saying here that in our justification, we have died to the law. Well, what aspect of God's law? Well, the first use of the law. The law as it comes to us as a covenant of works. Paul continues in verse 6, But now we are released from the law. Right, just as that, that, that widower was released from her marriage. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Paul is saying that in our justification, we are released from the law as a covenant of works. The law no, no longer comes to the justified individual as the means of attaining eternal life, nor does it come to the justified individual with threats and curses. Those aspects of the law of God have been canceled out. And so when you read your Bibles and you come across conditional language and join to the law of God, those conditions do not apply to you if you're in Christ. Those are statements of God's law according to his first use, according to how it functions as a covenant of works. This is why Paul can say in Romans 6 that you are no longer under the law, but under grace. You think, wait a minute, Paul, are you saying that the law no longer applies to us whatsoever? No, he's saying you're no longer under the law as a covenant of works, as a means of attaining eternal life, or as something that threatens and curses you if you break it at a single point. That aspect of the law has been canceled out, set aside. And so in that sense, you are no longer under the law, but rather you're under grace if you're a justified individual. Now, the second use of the law, which Reformed theologians speak about, is the civil use of the law, which we won't spend much time on here. This is how, uh, chiefly speaking, the natural law 
uh, works as it's written upon our hearts in all of society. But the third use of the law is what I do want to spend um, some time on this morning. So the third use of the law is how the law still applies to us as Christians. It's sometimes referred to as a normative use of the law. So the first use of the law is sort of cancel out for us as Christians. The third use of the law still applies to us. It's still normative for us as believers, as the justified. This is why Paul can say in Galatians chapter 6 that we are called to fulfill the law of Christ. So on the one hand, Paul can say you are no longer under the law. But then on the other hand, Paul can say, no, you're actually called to fulfill the law of Christ. Well, what law is he referring to? Well, he's referring to the moral law according to its third use as it comes to justified individuals, justified believers. Boys and girls, in catechism, we, I, 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 um, I gave you that acronym, the SOSs of God's law, that this normative function of God's law uh, serves to both show us our sin and show us our service. And so that's what we see here in question answer 115. Question answer 115 summarizes this third use of the law for us as Christians. It summarizes for us in what ways the law of God is still relevant for us as justified individuals. And so notice the first um, uh, way in which the law is relevant to us according to its third use. First, so that all our life long we may more and more come to know our sinful nature and thus more eagerly seek the forgiveness of sins and righteousness in Christ. Paul is saying that one of the reasons why we still need the law preached pointedly, one of the reasons why we still need to read the law, is to be reminded that we can't keep it. This is something I think we can easily forget. When we read God's law, we oftentimes as Christians go immediately to application. But... Catechism here is saying that one of the reasons and purposes for us reading the law is to be reminded that we can't keep it. Liturgically speaking, this is why we include the reading of the law every Sunday in our worship service, to be reminded that we can't keep it. If we were to be judged according to God's strict justice, we fail miserably. And this acknowledgement, realization, is meant to lead us to Christ, to find our refuge in Christ, who is our forgiveness, who is our righteousness. And again, this is why liturgically speaking, in our first service, after we read the law, we confess our sins, and what do we do? We hear the gospel. We find our refuge in Christ, who is our righteousness and who is our forgiveness. And Paul says much the same thing in verses 7 through 8 of Romans chapter 7, when he says, What shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had said, You shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. Again, Paul is saying that the law is what showed him his sin. Paul uh, Paul would not have known that those desires in his heart were actually sinful desires if it had not been for the law, which illuminated the sin that was present in his heart. And so we read the law in order to be convicted of our sin and continue to find our refuge in Christ, even as believers, even as Christians. Well, then second, uh, the catechism says, uh, we also are called to strive to keep God's law by the power of the Holy Spirit. So we also are called to read God's law as a means of of, of God's law showing us our service, revealing to us our, our life of grateful obedience to him in response to the gospel. So question answer 115 says, Second, so that we may never stop striving and never stop praying to God for the grace of the Holy Spirit so that we may be renewed more and more after God's image until after this life we reach our goal of perfection. 
So we are called to strive. We are called to obey. Uh, in this sense, the law functions as a lamp, as it illuminates our path in this Christian life. And now notice that here the, the catechism is saying that God's law shows us what perfection is. It shows us what the goal is for the moral life. Now, we won't attain that goal in this life, but rather we are to be headed in that direction. Now, if you think about perfection, if you think about uh, God's laws describing the top of a mountain, we are called to be summiting the mountain of God's moral law. Now, we will only make a small beginning in that summit, but we are called to be going in that direction. And the selection of what is the most effective path to get to the top of that mountain, that's a matter of wisdom and Christian freedom. And we all may have disagreements in terms of what is the most effective path to pursue the ends of the 5th, 6th, 7th, 8th, 9th, 10th commandments. But we are called to be headed in that direction. And I, as a minister, don't have the authority to bind your conscience in terms of what specific path you take. But if you're going in the wrong direction, I have the authority to bind your conscience and say you need to flip around and start summoning that mountain again. And so this concludes our consideration of the Ten Commandments and really God's law. And we will now, uh, next week, turn to consider prayer, which is the second main part of this gratitude section. And this section will largely be an exposition of the Lord's Prayer, which we recite every Sunday.